All right, if you have a Bible, open it to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4 is going to be this passage we're looking at this morning, verses 1 through 6. We are, we're finishing up this morning a short series we've been doing to start the new year, looking at God's calling, if you're a Christian, uh, not just to his son Jesus, but also to one another. And so every week, the past three weeks, we've been looking at a different aspect of our calling to one another and the way that through it we experience a deeper sense of belonging with each other, but then also with God. And so today we are going to end this series uh, looking at a very pertinent topic for us as Christians to be talking about today, unity. So if you have a Bible open, follow along with me, Ephesians 4. Uh, as I read the Apostle Paul's words, starting in verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Uh, in uh, 1862, Abraham Lincoln, president then, wrote a now famous letter to Congress. Uh, the uh, country was divided in the midst of civil war. There was racial hostility, there was cultural distrust, there was economic inequality. And in the midst of that, Lincoln wrote this inspiring letter, pleading, urging with Congress to, to follow his lead and do whatever we need to, to restore and repair the American democracy, which Lincoln called the last best hope of earth. If you've been watching the news, um, Last couple weeks, that's probably a phrase, the last best hope of earth. You've heard politicians both sides say, right now the crossroads that we're in in the last month, we, we need to summons up whatever possible to save our American democracy, the last best hope of earth. I know I am pro-democracy, okay? Hear me when I'm about to say. But if we're strictly talking about a group of people from the vantage point of the Bible, uh, if we're strictly talking just about a group of people, the last best hope of earth isn't any sort of democratic state. It's not even the American people. No, it's you and me. It's the church, the body of Christ, 
that the Bible says, strictly from human terms, isn't just the last best hope on earth, but the only hope of earth. Now, you, you may disagree with that for some very valid reasons, uh, but humor me, all right, just for a couple of minutes here. Better yet, humor the Apostle Paul, and just for the next 20, 30 minutes, try this on, and just see at the end if it fits. If we're strictly talking about a group of people, the last best hope of earth is the church. But what type of church? What type of church does our world need? What type of church does your neighbor need? What type of church do you need? If St. Paul was answering that question for us right now, he'd say what he says here in this passage. A united church. Uh, verse 1 of the passage that we just read is the hinge that separates the two halves of the book of Ephesians. In chapters 1 through 3, Paul explains the incredible good news of Jesus Christ to the Ephesians, that despite the fact that we didn't earn it, in defiance to the fact that we never could, by grace through faith, you have become united with Jesus Christ in his death, resurrection, and ascension. That you have become now a part of the new temple of God that will cover all of creation. You have been made a ruler with Christ over his new creation. You are members in God's household, children in his family with unlimited access to the God of the universe, all because through Jesus Christ, you have been made into a new humanity, a new people, a new creation. And with these great privileges come great responsibilities and priorities. And so after explaining the essence, the good news of Christianity, all through chapters one through three, Paul now pivots and will spend pretty much the rest of the book showing us how we're supposed to live in light of all that Jesus Christ and love has done on our behalf. And so here in verse one, after everything he says, he says, therefore, therefore, because of everything Jesus has done for you, be united. First thing on Paul's mind. First order of business in the Christian life. Be one. So what your world needs, what your neighbor needs, what you need is a united church. And so because of that, Paul tells us two things in this passage that we have to hear. We must not divide and we cannot divide. So first, we must not divide. Now, the, the reason Paul even has to tell us any of this in the first place because 
Paul knows uh, that, that there will be a certain level of disunity in, in every church. It's, it's a, a sad inevitability. I mean, you read through the, the rest of his letters to the pastors and churches he writes to in the New Testament, and you can see he, he anticipates that life in the church will be difficult. It will be hard. There, there will be disunity at times. And so as someone experienced in the, the inevitable disunity that happens in any church, Paul tells us we must not divide. No, instead, follow the way of unity. See, in verse 2, Paul names uh, three traits of a unifier, three graces of the Holy Spirit working in our lives to keep us in the unity that God has, that has brought us into. Uh, and it, it's simple um, in one sense, but each of these traits that he lists off here, they're, they're relatively simple to grasp, but each of them has not just an opposite trait that creates disunity, but also a counterfeit trait, uh, a way of relating to people where we think we're embodying one of the things he talks about here, but actually, it's just a counterfeit fruit. And though we don't realize it, we're only creating further disunity in the church. So can you spot the difference between the real and the counterfeit? He says in verse 2, this way of unity starts with complete Humility. Uh, humility, as one author has said it, is the, the art of self-forgetfulness, right? It's not, it's not thinking less of yourself, having kind of just this poor self-esteem. It's, it's thinking of yourself less. Right? It's the complete opposite way of thinking of one of the hidden and yet most divisive uh, beliefs in our American culture right now, All right? In America, I mean, if you, if you grew up here in America from the time you were a kid, you were told to view yourself as an individual, self-made, self-reliant person that can rise up through the ranks of economic, social success, as far in life as your hard work and natural talent will take you. It's the American dream. That is one recent president has said over 140 times in speeches, you can make it if you try. Uh, Michael Sandel, he, he teaches at Harvard, has written a book this past year on it, uh, where he says in there, th this line of thinking, not only is it not true, it's incredibly divisive. Because here's the implication under it. If, if me, this individual, self-made, self-reliant person, if I'm successful, I have no one to credit for that success other than myself. And if you're not successful in life, then you have no one to blame but yourself. Meaning, if you haven't made it, and how we in America define that. If you haven't become successful in some way, then either you didn't try hard enough or there's something wrong with you. Either way, it's your fault. 
is this line of thinking that, that's been in our politics the last 40 years that has divided us into a country of winners and losers. Where those who've made it, oftentimes unknowingly, become puffed up with this self-aggrandizement. And those who society deems haven't made it, filled with disgrace. It's what Sandel calls the politics of humiliation, and it's led to explosive divides over the last five years, not just here in America that we're seeing play out right now in the news, but in Britain, Germany, France, Italy, all through Europe. It's the opposite of humility. This self-aggrandizement. And yet we can do it in the church too. Materially, but also spiritually. We start to think, I am to credit my own spiritual growth to myself. And so we probably very much unknowingly start to then look down our nose at people who are supposedly less spiritually mature than us and think, what's their problem? And why, why aren't they further along than me right now? Why, 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 why is their life such a mess? Why haven't they gotten it together? I've managed to do it. Not that hard. You can do it if you try. Here, though, is what Paul also isn't saying humility is, though. Humility, then, isn't just saying what, what a lot of times we kind of think of as humility, of just thinking, well, I'm just a nobody then. I'm not really that good at anything I do. I've got so many character flaws. You know, I, I, I'm, you know I don't look at me. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm nobody. That's not true humility either. No, that's the counterfeit. That's a false humility because at the end of the day, you're still focused on yourself. No, true humility is Jesus Christ, God of the universe, bending down to wash the stinky, dirty feet of his, at that time, relatively idiot disciples. True humility is a focus on other people that turns you into a servant. And a servant of other people is a unifier. So first, Paul says in verse 2, this way of humility starts, or way of unity starts with humility. Second, gentleness. Uh, the word completely, and at the start of verse 2 there, uh, grammatically in the Greek, should be applied to both the humility and the gentleness. Paul says the way of humility, or way of unity, is complete humility and complete gentleness. Uh, here's how you know if you're, if you're a gentle person or not. When somebody wrongs you, somebody in the church offends you, how do you respond? You pull out the verbal daggers, assert yourself, you know, take the Mike Tyson approach to relational conflicts, you know, you, you don't hit me because I'll just hit you back harder. Self-assertion, which is the opposite of gentleness when we've been wronged, is what we saw play out at the Capitol a few weeks ago. Uh, Philip Gorski, 
professor at Yale, teaches sociology there, has written a lot in the last five years uh, about the rhetoric of our last president. Now, I'm not, I'm not making a political statement here, okay? I'm just, this is just somebody analyzing another person's words. All right, Gorski, in his research on the, the rhetoric and message of our last president, has showed how his general message uh, mimicked, in many ways, parts of the message of Christianity. And, and in Gorski's analysis of, of this, in our last president's message, sin was weakness. Salvation was strength. Somebody wrongs you, you've got to assert yourself. This isn't a time for weakness. This is a time to be strong. That is what we heard before the Capitol was stormed last week, three weeks ago, wasn't it? Has that unified anybody? No, the Apostle Paul says the way of unity is complete gentleness. It's when you're offended, putting down the daggers, but also rolling up the doormat. Because true gentleness isn't then this, this um, subservient groveling uh, where we, we lose all dignity of ourselves and, and let ourselves just be run over by anyone and anyone in our life. No, uh, true gentleness is this. It's the power, when you've been wronged, to respond with truth that restores, not destroys the other person. That's true gentleness. True gentleness is Jesus. On the night he was betrayed, when he's being arrested for crimes that he didn't commit, and and the apostle Peter takes out a sword and cuts off one of the soldier's ears, and what does Jesus do? He picks up the man's ear and he heals it. Truth. I am not who you think I am. I am the creator God of the universe. Meaning I could snatch your life from you this very second. Restores. But I'm going to use my power right now to heal your life, not take your life. I'm just going out on a limb here. Uh, What do you think that soldier, what do you think his posture was towards Jesus and his disciples after that? Probably not hostile anymore, right? Except maybe towards Peter, a little bit. True gentleness is the power to respond when you're wrong with a truth that restores, not destroys the other person. And a restorer is a unifier. So, humility, gentleness, third, lastly, patience. Paul says the way of unity uh, in verse 2 is patience. And then he clarifies what he means by this patience when he says, uh, bearing with one another, long-suffering, maybe some translations have it, with one another in love. 
Meaning he's not talking about a, a situational patience here, just kind of waiting uh, on God to open something up in your life. He's talking about a, a relational patience. He's talking about essentially putting up for a long time with the faults of other people. You know, he, he, here's how any relationship, any relationship in life, any relationship in the church goes sideways. You start to become more focused on the other person's sin than your own. After a time, you, you lose an accurate awareness of yourself, accurate understanding of yourself, and you also lose an accurate understanding and view of that other person. And you get filled with this self-righteousness that starts to think, yeah, how can they keep doing that to me? How can they say that to me? Gosh, I, how can they treat me that way? You know, I would never say that to somebody. I, I would never treat somebody like that before. We started thinking, you know what? I don't need this person anymore. Big church, I can avoid them. Right? When somebody's wronged us in the church, we think oftentimes, well, that, that was the end of that relationship. There's now 199 other people that I can potentially find to be a friend now. I don't need this person anymore. Cancel them. Or, here's what happens. We bottle it up. We look on the outside like we are being patiently long-suffering with the faults of other people in our lives, but really it's a counterfeit patience. Because what's happening is we're, we're just saying these unvoiced judgments in our heads about them that over time will harden so much bitterness that eventually you, it doesn't matter what that other person says. You don't care what they say or do. Nothing can change the way that you think of them. True patience is how God described himself to Moses. In Exodus 34, when he cried out to him, I am the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, long-suffering, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Do you hear it in there? Patiently long-suffering. Someone who is patiently long-suffering, who can put up for a long time with the faults of other people, the way they do that is because they're a forgiver. And a forgiver is a unifier. Now, do you see what's going on here really quickly? The way of unity, Paul says uh, in this verse here, is complete humility, complete gentleness, and patiently long-suffering with one another in love. Now, what, what's the opposite of all of those? What's the opposite of humility? Self-aggrandizement. What's the opposite of gentleness? Self-assertion. What's the opposite of patience? Self-righteousness. What's the opposite of unity? Self. It's living for self that becomes what creates disunity in the church. And so because of that, the Apostle Paul says here, no, instead follow this way of unity, humility, gentleness, patience. But here's the thing. None of these traits are ones that we ultimately create in ourselves. 
No, as the Apostle Paul describes it elsewhere in the New Testament, these are all traits that God in love forms in us. That when we live by faith in Jesus Christ, we through that access more and more of the saving, transforming grace of God in our lives that bears through fruit through his Holy Spirit. In other words, meaning it's Jesus who the, through the Spirit who forms in us a humility that serves, a gentleness that restores, and a patience that forgives. Meaning this, if you want a united church, don't aim at unity. Aim at Jesus. And the unity will come with it. We must not divide, Paul says. No, follow the way of unity and feel the weight of unity. Paul says in verse 3, Make every effort then to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. You know, this verse is a uh, paradox in one sense. Because in it, Paul says, do everything. Literally, bend every effort in your life to be united as a church. And yet at the same breath reminds us, we didn't create this unity though. No, it's the unity of the Spirit. And in saying that, Paul is calling our attention back to chapter 2 where he describes how through the death of Jesus Christ, God has united Christians across every national, racial, cultural, social barrier imaginable. Jew and Gentile in Ephesians, Arab and American today, conservative and progressive, all of us through the blood of Christ, Paul says in 2.13, have been made one, giving us one common access through God's Spirit. It's a great privilege. Paul says, make it your great priority. So first, he admonishes. And now he appeals. First, Paul commands now he convinces. First he tells us what to do, and, and now tells us why to do it. First he says we must not divide. Now Paul says we cannot divide. Starting in verse 4, Paul almost sits us down and, and says, look, we can't divide. Just look at the proof of our unity in verse 4, he, he goes through the foundations of Christianity, all with an important word before each of them, one. Paul says there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Paul says there's one body, meaning one body of Christ, the church. And when he says that, he's actually not talking about 
the church in Ephesus or the church here, you and me today, the local church. No, he's talking about the universal church. That as Paul says in chapter 2, Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection, has called not just individuals, but he has called one entire people across every race, nation, and culture, and socioeconomic category possible to himself. People that the Apostle Paul says have now risen and ascended and sit with Jesus Christ at the right hand of God, having the same status and standing with God that Jesus Christ himself enjoys right now. Meaning that by grace through faith, you are risen on high with Jesus Christ. And so is the Christian sitting next to you, and so is the Christian sitting next to them, and so is the Christian sitting next to them and next to them, making us all one body, one universal Catholic, as we said in the creed today, church through the blood of Jesus Christ. And Paul says there's one spirit the spirit that Paul goes on to say in chapter 2 has united us to Jesus Christ, applying to us all the same benefits of Jesus' saving, transforming work in our lives, whereby we all share in one unlimited access to God, the Father of all of us, through this one spirit. And there is one Lord, he says, one Jesus Christ who is crucified for our sins, who through his death and resurrection has taken the place of highest honor as Lord, the one Lord over his church and all creation. And because of that, there is one faith, Paul says, in this one Lord, one message, one good news that transcends culture, class, and ideology unlike any other world religion. And then there is one baptism one sign of our union with Christ, one name-giving ceremony where the name given to you is Jesus himself. Because there is one grace, one unthinkable plan of the love of God to call one people from all nations, across all times, to himself. And so as a church, if we become divided over things like politics and pandemics, race and justice, Orange County and Seminole County, private school and public school, we're telling the world very different story of the history of this world. One where Jesus never came, where the way we vote, the size of our salary, the color of our skin are impassable barriers that define us. A world where forgiveness and reconciliation don't exist and humility is at best an optimistic pipe dream. Don't you see, Paul says, we can't divide. Just look at the past and the proof of our unity. 
And now look at the future and the purpose of our unity. Paul says again in verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. When, when Paul uses that word hope in Ephesians, he has a specific hope in mind. Uh, what he calls in chapter 1 the mystery of God. That he says has been hidden for ages, but has now, as he explains in chapter 1, been revealed through Jesus Christ. And the mystery, the hope, is this. That he says in chapter 110, God will at the end of time bring unity to all things in heaven and earth under Jesus Christ. This, Paul is saying, is the one hope of our passage. That at the end of time, God will unify, literally sum up, bring to conclusion gather together all the dislocated parts of our world fractured because of sin and in Christ bring them to the conclusion, the point that they were made for, summing them up, uniting them in the glory of God through Jesus Christ. It's this hope, this one hope of Christianity that God, who in verse 6 says is over all and through all and in all, will through this universal reign of his fulfill these plans and at the end of time bring everything into unity under Christ. It's this eventual cosmic unity that Paul says in chapter 3, our unified church is a sign to our world of what's to come. That as Paul says in chapter 3, verse 10, God's intent is that through our unified church, the manifold wisdom of God will be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places according to God's eternal purpose that he has accomplished in Jesus Christ our Lord. What Paul means here is that a united church, the unified church, is a prototype, a preview to show all the world of what's to come when God unites everything in Jesus Christ. In fact, you could, you could sum up the entire message of the book of Ephesians in this. A united church, the sneak peek for a united universe. In 2001, uh, Steve Jobs released the first generation iPod, if you can remember that. At the time, right now it looks kind of archaic, at the time, it was revolutionary. No one had ever seen anything like this before. Uh, in fact, the, um, the, the, the people who were helping him make it, uh, his designers, uh, at one point after he took one of their prototypes and threw it in an aquarium because he didn't like it, they, they said, we've literally had to reinvent inventing just to figure out how to even make one of these. 
But on October 23, 2001, Steve Jobs stood before the world and held up the first ever iPod. Now, as brilliant as he was, Jobs could have never foreseen that this was just the beginning of an Apple revolution. Had he known where things were going, he could have said, this is just the beginning. Soon, I will do this to everything. Your phone, your watch, your TV, your lawnmower. Not yet. Soon. I'm hoping that comes soon. That's one of the next ones they do. Nothing will be outside the grasp of my digital revolution. But God, God does know where everything's going. And his united church is just the beginning, the sneak peek of what's to come through our unity. God is saying to the world, this is just the beginning. I am about to do this with everything. History will end in a display of cosmic unity where heaven and earth and every person across all time who I've called to myself will be brought together, summed up, unified in the praise of Jesus Christ to my glory, that the unity of our church is a sign forward to the world of where history is going, a sneak peek for your neighbors and our communities to see of God's plans to finally rid and redeem our world of every ounce of sin. And so is a church we don't live in unity, if we gossip and judge and bite and cancel, we're telling our neighbors and our world to prepare for a different future, a future full of self-aggrandizement, self-assertion, self-righteousness, a world where sin wins and we have no hope. Don't you see, Paul says, we can't divide. No, just look at the future and the purpose of our unity. We must not divide, we cannot divide. The unity of our church is a great privilege and must also be our great priority. One that we'll never be able to keep on our own. But when we look to the gospel, we find not only the grace that has made us one, but will keep us one. Because it's in the gospel we see what God has done about the sin that disunites us from each other and from him. That Jesus Christ on the cross, very nature of God, Jesus Christ humbled himself, Paul says in Philippians 2, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, where when mocked by the onlookers, he can save others, but he can't save himself. Jesus had the gentle power 
to stay on the cross. We're in the greatest display of patiently long-suffering possible. He looked down at his creation murdering him and said, Father, forgive them. It's here on the cross, in our place, by his will, that we see God condemning our sin, our, our divisive living for self in his son, freeing us from the power of self to the joy of making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. Thanks be to Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we know where history is heading. That as Revelation 7 shows us, our world will end in a display of complete unity when people from all nations across all times are praising your grace in Jesus Christ. Jesus, help us to live today by the power of the Spirit as he bears the fruit of unity in our lives. Amen.